Do you ever have a loud inner critic that constantly wears down your self-esteem and increases your self-doubt? Is an athlete's ability to talk themselves down from a negative, erratic mindset a sign of weakness or evidence of mental toughness? Welcome to the Sports Psychology Of. I'm Gabe Zellico. Today we're breaking down the sports psychology of self-compassion. What many think is related to mental weakness, research on self-compassion makes it clear how it can enhance mental performance and overall mood. One of the researchers contributing to this literature is Dr. Zoe Zompopoulou, a sport and exercise psychologist based in Scotland. She recently completed her doctoral studies at Glasgow Caledonian University. She is currently running her own sport and exercise psychology business, Creative Sport Mind, and working as a psychology lecturer at New Battle Academy College. She has experience in working in professional, community, and student sports. Zoe's expertise and research areas include self-compassion, self-care, personal development, and social media fitness trends and their effect on women's body image and intentions to diet and exercise. In this episode, you'll hear discussions around whether or not self-compassion can lead to complacency, tangible methods to develop self-compassion, Zoe's doctoral research, and more. Timestamps are in the description. Enjoy. Okay, Zoe, how would you define self-compassion? And is it as simple as it is the opposite of excessive self-criticism? So, yes, one can think of self-compassion as an alternative to self-criticism and negative self-evaluation. So the concept of self-compassion encompasses two dimensions. So first thing we need to keep in mind is noticing and acknowledging suffering. So I don't know, I am a gymnast. I wasn't able to do a very important skill in one of my competitions and it's really difficult for me. And that noticing and acknowledging that is the first part of what self-compassion is. The second part is that when we acknowledge that suffering, we need to take a responsibility to act and do something about it. So we don't just say, okay, I'm sad, that's it. We just need to keep in mind that we need to do something about it. Maybe it wasn't our fault. Maybe something happened, but then still the responsibility lies on us. What I wanted to pick up from that is this awareness piece. It sounds like you cannot be self-compassionate without having the awareness of this excessive negativity on your own self-talk. Is, is this something that you bring to light very often when you work with people on self-compassion? Yes, this is very important because that self-awareness you're talking about is the basis of being able to recognize if you are compassionate towards yourself or not. It's like we all have this inner critic. We all have, you know... We criticize ourselves. We have some not very useful or positive thoughts about things that are happening to ourselves every single day. And that's fine. It happens to all of us. But when it's excessive, this is when the problem starts. And this is when that self-awareness is needed to say, okay, this is too much. My inner critic is too loud and it has started to cause problems. So usually this is the start of everything and most of the times 
people and especially athletes are not aware of it. And many, many times in my experience working in football in the UK, being on the pitch, I'm hearing a lot of negative self-talk and I'm talking with coaches and they report the same thing, that athletes are being very self-critical and they don't pay attention to it. They're not aware. Yeah, this, this awareness piece is so important to me and I think empowering for people to understand because it's the gate that opens up the effectiveness of every mental skill that we can talk about because using any psychological skill to enhance your mental game is preceded by self-awareness. So it's such an important element to talk about when we talk about really enhancing your mental game in any way. So I think of awareness on two levels, basically the micro and the macro. So that micro is kind of what you were talking about on the pitch. I'm aware that I'm talking excessively negatively to myself. So I'm aware in the moment. But then there's the macro way of enhancing your awareness of just kind of understanding how you tick as a person, as an athlete, understanding patterns of how you think. So we might be going in a different direction to start this off, but it's definitely related to self-compassion. So do you have specific ways of helping people train that awareness both on a micro and macro level? I feel like a lot of the times when I'm working with athletes, they might come to me and say, okay, I have this problem with my performance. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's my confidence. Maybe I have anxiety. And most of the times, if we really go deep into it and explore what's going on for them, the inner critic will be loud. So if you don't feel confident enough, most of the times you're saying to yourself, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to be here. So again, that goes back to that inner critic. Same if you have pre-performance anxiety, you are talking to yourself potentially in an unhelpful way. And then this goes back to, okay, let's explore the inner critic and what's going on. So I feel like from an athlete perspective or a client perspective, this is how we would start. I've also done a lot of work with teams and their culture. And it's very interesting sometimes after a game, after a match, when they have their chat and they're saying, you know what, we're all negative. Nobody was positive. The coaches were screaming. We were screaming and we weren't supportive to each other. And then again, from their own reflections, they conclude that, okay, maybe we all criticize ourselves and then it moves on to criticizing each other. And it creates that climate of all the inner critics being really loud and out and nobody's present in the moment and nobody's able to perform as they're supposed to perform. Yeah, and that you mentioned that reflective practice is one way that can really be on a micro and macro level because it happens outside of the game where you're, where you're reflecting on the experience as a whole, but this can feed into your ability in the future of being aware in the moment when it is happening because you're you're reflecting on it maybe or ideally writing down about it so it can be a bit more powerful rather than just thinking about it and then you can kind of catch yourself being aware of this negativity that is undermining your ability to have some self-compassion not only to yourself but to teammates that's going to allow for better culture, better team cohesion, better, just more positivity and optimism that's going to, going to lead to enhanced performance. I want to, we're going to talk about how self-compassion is linked 
to better performance, both on the mental game and ultimately your, the outcome of your game. But I wanted to talk about some factors about why self-compassion is so difficult for people nowadays. And I, maybe I just want to start off. Do you think it's more difficult for people in this day and age than maybe 30 years ago, 50, 100 years ago? Or is it just always tough for humans? I think it's increasingly difficult nowadays because there's loads of social comparison. And usually this comes from social media, Instagram, TikTok, everything that especially young athletes use on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is something that, again, I wanted to talk about that social comparison aspect because you see everybody's life or performance if they're athletes on social media and usually everything is perfect because they choose what they want to portray and usually it's their amazing moments everything they've done well or their accomplishments and then a lot of people think that this is their everyday life so this is where all the social comparison starts and it's very easy to just open up your phone, see somebody's life and say, oh, they're so much better than me. And then your inner critic, again, starts to come out. And this social comparison conditions that to kind of keep going. I think it's pretty obvious that the solution would be, okay, stop going on social media. Boom. You're taking out so much social comparison that is without a doubt undermining all of this mental game because of it feeding that negative self-talk. But that's, that's not going to happen. That seems like an unrealistic solution at this point. And there are some pros of social media, albeit many negatives. So how can someone improve their relationship with social media that leads to less social comparison? So maybe they're seeing the same things as this other person that is comparing themselves constantly. What would the someone who's more trained and has a better relationship with social media say to themselves when they keep seeing the, the highlights of everybody else that they might be tempted to compare themselves to. I love that you mentioned when you started reflecting back about what's realistic and what's not realistic, because there is a lot of research done about social media, social comparison, the inner critic and all that. And researchers say, just do not go on social media. And that is unrealistic, as you said. If we talk about it and say, please do that, young people would not follow that advice. And so I would never recommend that. Everything in moderation. And the things that people can do to engage in social media content, but try not to compare themselves to whatever's going on in other people's life, lives is to have that awareness that Everybody has a choice in what they post and what they post does not mean that this is their everyday life. It's part of their lives, but not what's happening every day. So if they're able to engage with content on social media with that filter on, this is a healthier way to go about it and, and try not to be too influenced from what they see. And look at that awareness gets brought up yet again. So it's having that awareness when scrolling through social media of, okay, this is not their actual life. Or even if they are having the success, I think it's always important to understand that nothing is perfect. So 
if someone has this position or got to this team that you wanted to make and they look like they're thriving, there's probably a lot of stress that comes with it that you aren't thinking about that they are not portraying. And that can, again, be another way to dampen that, that automatic response that so many people have to social media. Exactly. And I feel like we put a lot of pressure, especially on young people, to do that and gain that self-awareness. So this is where that macro level you were talking about and maybe schools as uh, psychologists, parents should be educated and try to educate young people about that. So everybody knows about it and there's no kind of assumption. So what's the content I'm consuming and all that. Let's go to another factor I was thinking about of why self-compassion is so difficult for people. I think a lot of people are afraid of being perceived as weak or soft, especially in the sport culture. And a lot of people equate self-compassion to I'm weak or soft. And while this isn't even the case, do you find that fear of self-compassion leading to that, the opposite of being that macho, tough athlete, a big obstacle for self-compassion? You are right. There is that myth of self-compassion equals weakness. I've seen that in research quite a lot. And I've seen that in private practice, working with different teams. And a lot of athletes perceive, perceive self-criticism as a motivational mechanism. So they say that if I'm going to succeed, be the best, be tough, I need to be tough with myself. And that means I need to be self-critical. I need to beat myself down because that's the only way I'm going to get back up. But that is not the case. We've seen from a lot of research uh, and talking to different people that self-criticism, excessive self-criticism is very unhelpful and it cannot fulfill that purpose of, you know, motivating the athlete to keep going. And I think you, you, you nailed it when you said excessive self-criticism. I think the right term when it's not excessive self, but it is still critiquing yourself as an athlete. I think this is more as constructive. You're, you're, you're talking to yourself in a way that's constructive. So you're basically just trying to construct the right method to improve and play near your potential, but you're not being excessively critical. So that could be maybe a term that we use going forward, but that, that in its own right is what, and we, what we talked about moderation with social media, that feels like the moderation of self-criticism that you're just being constructive. You're not going too far into that end, but it is very unfair to say that someone cannot be critical of themselves because that's how you learn. Being critical is how you find ways that you can improve because you're understanding the weaknesses, which if we just ignored weaknesses all the time, obviously you're not going to be the best athlete that you can. So this conversation is all about how can we rebalance the scales of self-compassion and constructive self-criticism. Exactly. You are spot on on that. We maybe would not call, I am being self-critical. Maybe we would say I'm being self-reflective in the work I do. I do not like using that kind of criticism or I'm being critical with myself word when I use with clients. So usually we say I'm being self-reflective because as you said, that's the only way to learn or giving myself some constructive feedback of what I can improve, what I can do better. 
And again, as you previously said, we need to find that balance because an athlete would never be able to grow without trying to reflect on what they can improve and the areas that they could work on. Yeah, that language is so important of changing it to something like reflective or feedback rather than critical, because as soon as you use that language, that's a bit harsher, you can put your own defensive up. You can put your own guard up and now you're less receptive to the feedback and you're not giving yourself a chance to to take in that information effectively and make a change where you need to. So uh, just just changing language in your self-talk in your head can be so important. Um, I wanted to bring up this other factor of the obstacle for self-compassion, which is, and this comes up a lot in just mental skills training, I think, but fear of it leading to complacency. So fear of this leading to a mindset where I'm okay with not pushing myself to my limit. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier of I'm being too nice to myself through this self-compassion. But this is, again, something that they I don't think people understand if they do think of self-compassion leading to complacency. And we're definitely going to get into the details of how this actually leads to enhanced performance. But what's your kind of quick take on that? I feel like what you described is very common in athletes. And what I usually see is that people who think like that focus on the first part of self-compassion's definition, that we have to acknowledge the suffering. And they're not thinking about the responsibility taking that comes after. So this is why it's very important to bust that myth that self-compassion equals um, complacency and being able to bring that responsibility taking in because again nobody will come to save you nobody is going to come and do things for you so you need to be able no matter how things are you need to be able to take that responsibility and move forward yeah I love that it's almost like and this is I mean if, if I'm being honest this is maybe what I thought before you mentioned that it made it really clear to me that self-compassion, a lot of people thought of it as a pat on the back, whereas how you described it is a pat on the back and then pushing you back into the game. So it's basically not letting yourself off the hook with self-compassion. It's it's definitely filling your mind with a bit more positivity, but it's still going to have feedback and reflectiveness that's going to make you acknowledge and acknowledge any weaknesses or areas for improvement and then make those changes. So I think that's very clear of how it can not lead to complacency, but again, fill your mind in a, put you in a state of mind that's going to allow you to make the changes necessary to improve performance. Exactly. And I'm not saying that, you know, the responsibility taking needs to be instant. For example, if like in everyday life, you get really bad news, you lose your job, you're not doing well in your sport, you have a massive loss, then you can take that time to mourn and to really feel the emotions and what comes for you, but then you need to be able after a day, two, after a week, after a month to get yourself back up and take their responsibility to keep going. But if we think that with athletes, the people I'm working with, for example, in football, when we're doing all the work around self-compassion and their compassionate side being developed, if you, if you're playing if you're playing a match and then something doesn't go well and you really get those emotions of like 
sadness, anger, whatever, you know, comes up for you, then you need to be able to say, okay, this is what's happening for me, but I'm taking my responsibility now because I need to keep going. Um, That's such a good discrepancy between, okay, I, I can't really take the extra time. I have to be, I have to change now. But then it's the difference of you're in the game or the game ended. And I always refer to one of my favorite tools of the the Don Staley 24-hour rule where you can sit in that emotion for 24 hours of the pain of the loss or even the celebration of a win. But after that, it's time to start to move on. And self-compassion can be a tool to move on because like you said, it's important to not just brush your emotions to the side and not feel them because that is going to lead to them bubbling up even more intensely later on. So it's important to let you feel those. But again, that that might be different based on your circumstances. So if you're in a game, you might not want to be feeling that anger too intensely. Maybe you can have a part of your routine, maybe squeeze your water bottle really hard. Maybe you can yell a little bit, but in reality, you cannot sit in that for too long. However, if it's after a game, you're not actually playing, then yeah, feel those emotions and and don't ignore them because again, that could lead to um, them bumbling up, them being more intense later on. And let's get to this last factor. And then we're going to talk about the link between self-compassion and mental performance more clearly. So this last factor is we are clearly more comfortable being negative to ourselves than others. And so this, this makes it more difficult for people to exercise self-compassion within their own uh, self-talk. Have you found this? I mean, this feels really common. Uh, has this research kind of reflected the same pattern? Uh, yes, it did. And then again, it goes back to what we were talking about um, with social comparison and, and all that. But I wanted to give an example of, um, you know, working one-to-one with different athletes. They come to me and they talk about their performance and, you know, negative automatic thoughts that might come up and say, I'm not good enough and a lot of other harsher things. And I usually have these questions and I reflect what they're saying back to them. And then I ask them, would you say that to your best friend or to your, you know, parents, to your siblings, to your partner, would you speak like that to them? And then every single, every single athlete will say, no, I would never do that. So it's very, very common. And again, I don't think people are aware of it because they need somebody to bring that up and challenge them and say, would you do that? That's been such a helpful self-talk tool for me and the athletes I coach them through is understanding, okay, am I talking to myself like I would a friend? If I'm not, then I'm probably being irrational in the way that I'm getting frustrated or anxious about something. And it's just so, it's so fascinating how much that can quickly change the tone and intensity of the emotions of your self-talk. So that again, having the awareness to understand if you are having that way of talking to yourself of, would I talk to somebody else like this? Then maybe, maybe I'm not being realistic with myself or maybe they would want to say that to the friend and they just wouldn't in which case okay maybe there's maybe there's some kind of gap there but overall it's a really easy quick tool to enhance the quality of your self talk so i always love when that tool gets brought up and i always recommend people to 
to have that in your in their toolbox to enhance the quality of their self-talk. Yes, I, I love it too. So has it have you had the same experience in terms of athletes, you know, saying that all the time and being really common in your practice? Yeah. And whenever I bring it up, it's almost like I get halfway through the sentence and they go, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, he's right. And so it just leads to, I think everybody's pretty accepting of, of that tool and understanding that, yeah, it's, it's, it really frames it in a, in a way very quickly that they understand, yeah, this isn't, this isn't right the way I'm speaking to myself. So, and again, it, there, there could be a, one of those, one of those tools that's might be different for everybody that changes their perspective of how they're talking to themselves again in a really quick way because we need quick methods when we're out there performing and competing because we don't have time to go talk to a sports psychologist in between shifts for example we need something that can change our self-talk right away so but that that one has been a, a common one that gets brought up i also wanted to say on that that we're not going to always be there. As you're saying, we're not going to always be next to clients to challenge them and remind them of that. So it's very important to think about self-compassion in teams and that being part of their values or their culture. And I, I had the chance to, to help a couple teams and do self-compassion development, psychoeducational workshops. And it's everybody learning about it, you know, practicing together. And after some time that I went to observe the team and, you know, them playing, I was able to see that some of the players were challenging each other when they would hear a player being really self-critical, really putting themselves down, they would go to them and challenge that. So this again shows how powerful that can be in a team setting and for a team's culture. Yeah, I think overall that is awesome. And it would be great, like, like I don't know, just kind of a random, but like 90% of the time, that would be very positively impactful. But I can't help but wonder that that could stoke the flames and that fire a bit more if somebody is being really intense and negative to themselves and then they have a teammate. Maybe it's a teammate they're really close with. Maybe it's someone they don't know as well. And they're going, hey, you got to be nicer to yourself or doing exercising some of the self-compassion for them. And that person who is in that negative state getting more frustrated. Is that something that you've seen or could see happening? Yes, I have definitely seen that happening, not only with that, but, you know, like giving feedback to each other during a game, during a match. And there's something for me that comes back to what's the team's contract. So what's allowed to do, what's not allowed, and all the decisions and like commitments that the players have with each other. And usually when I work with a team, this is the first thing we do with the players and the coaches and the whole multidisciplinary team of, okay, like what's our contract, Wh which are our values, how are we going to behave, how are we going to communicate with each other? That makes so much sense getting ahead of that because you can understand this could be an issue if we don't acknowledge it again, like you said, the first step. So that will make it easier for that emotionally intense athlete to understand, hey, this is this is part of our team. This is part of our culture. If I if I do blow up in this person's face, this is this could be cause for maybe getting benched or even getting cut from the team because I'm not aligning with the team's culture and values. So that that is such an awesome way to get ahead of that. 
Exactly. Everybody needs to be on the same page for that to work. So before, uh, I think I said this last time, but I promise we're getting to it. Before we get to the links to mental toughness, I, I wanted to also go over any ways in which someone can be doing self-compassion wrong in the ways that we haven't been talking about. So we keep talking about people being excessively negative and not self-compassionate enough. But is there, and again, maybe this just doesn't happen, but is there a reality where athletes are actually being too compassionate with themselves and they're not, they're not giving them themselves any room for any criticism or feedback that's going to allow them to improve on a mistake they made? So yeah, for example, they made a mistake and they're being really self-compassionate, but they're not actually reflecting on how they can be better. And now this could be an example of how it could lead to complacency and not performing up to one's potential. But do you see this happen nearly as much as the, the other end of the spectrum happening? I definitely uh, see that happening in two ways. Firstly, I see exactly what you described. Somebody might say, okay, I made the mistake, so I need to be compassionate with myself. And then again, they focus on the first part of self-compassion. I really need to be kind and nice to myself and, you know, feel my feelings and that's it. And again, they forget to take that responsibility and say, okay, now it's over. I gave myself time to think about it, to feel it, but now I need to take action. I need to maybe sit down and reflect on what I did and how I can improve. Or I can ask a teammate or my coach and see, you know, what they think about it. And I need to be ready to receive those feedback and what they're going to say. So I've definitely seen that happening. Another thing I've seen again is people who are, who are trying to be self-compassionate. Sometimes maybe they focus quite a lot on themselves and it's like they, they leave compassion for other people away, if it makes sense. So I've had a lot of players, you know, having difficult relationships within teams and, you know, saying that, okay, I need to put boundaries. I need to put myself first. If, you know, something happens, I need to be able to remove myself from the situation because this is what's good for me. And my compassionate side would protect me by doing that. So I've seen that going, you know, a little bit towards the extreme of I'm really important. I need to put my boundaries. I need to put myself first. And then that's the only thing that's happening. And there's not a lot of, you know, compromise or again, taking the responsibility to make the situation better by reaching out to someone or wanting to have um, a conversation, if it makes sense. And this is an example of when you train a psychological skill in the wrong way, the effectiveness won't be there as much as it would be if you're doing it right. And so then you think, oh, this isn't working. I'm going to stop doing this. This stuff doesn't work. But it really is just in the practice, in the, the ingredients of how you executed that skill was off a little bit. All right, let's get to, this is going to be an overarching, pretty big general question. So we're going to get more specific as it goes. But how can self-compassion actually lead to mental toughness? I'll, I'll let you take this wherever you want. Okay. So I feel like, again, it's a good time here to introduce that concept of the multiple parts of the self. So we all have multiple parts. If, you know, I hear a lot of times athletes coming to me saying, I'm an anxious person. I cannot deal with this. I cannot deal with that. 
And I always go back to them and say, you know, this is a part of yourself. So you're not just an anxious person. You are so many more things. So again, having your self-compassionate side develop can lead to mental toughness because you are compassionate enough and taking the responsibility when you need to take it. So if we think about elite sport, for example, and all the sacrifices athletes need to make because they have to train, they have no social life, they might miss out on a lot of things, they need to be mentally tough for that. And again, that goes back to them being self-compassionate because if this is their value and their goal, and if this is where they want to go, then they have to take their responsibility and do that. So in my mind, it's kind of like if you have your uh, compassionate side developed, then this can connect to the mentally tough one in terms of it gives you, it shows you kind of the way to go there and taking the responsibility to be mentally tough. You briefly mentioned how if you are trying to basically be your best, perform to your potential on a consistent basis, you're going to have to sacrifice. And that includes social life, other things that could lead to burnout. And I know you have this or you've uncovered research and which shows that self-compassion can not only manage, like reduce the intensity of burnout symptoms, but maybe even prevent burnout from occurring in the first place. And in case it needs to be said, the mentally tough athlete does not experience burnouts or maybe they, they do experience it every now and then, but overall, if they're performing near their potential, they are not experiencing burnout when they are. So how can self-compassion have this relationship that reduces or prevents burnout? So again, there's something about having that moderation and the balance. So being self-compassionate means that you need to focus on your goals and whatever you have, but then you need to take into account your own well-being. So if you are self-compassionate, you usually have to have some time for your self-care. So self-compassion in my research has been kind of shown to be part of self-care. So my wider research area is self-care. And when I researched that in kind of a general level, it came down to self-awareness and self-compassion. So one way to exercise self-care is to be self-compassionate. And that would mean making a plan of being proactive so you don't go towards burnout. There's also something that we will probably talk about a bit more about what you can do to be self-compassionate, and that's mindfulness and meditation. And um, so that could be a big part of self-care and, you know, having some time for yourself. That again, if you exercise that, your chances to move into burnout are going to be a lot less. And it's just so difficult for people in our position because we are battling a culture that does not take into account well-being and self-care because it's looked at as something that the weaker or softer athlete would do. But again, it is so clear from not only research, but also experience, anecdotal experience from a lot of different people that when you ignore self-care and you put too much energy into what is draining you, then you are going to be worse for wear as a result. So it's very clear that having a balance of 
well-being, self-care, and pushing yourself to the limit is going to allow you to consistently push yourself to the limit and reach your potential. So I, I like I like that that what you said about take into account the well-being, because that is again one way that we're going to proactively prevent burnout. Or if we are experiencing symptoms of burnout, it's not going to be a solution to lean into the hard work. It's it's saying, okay, how can I do things that lead to some more enjoyment in my life? So the stuff that isn't enjoyable anymore isn't going to be as it won't take as much of a toll on my mental game. So I wanted yeah, go ahead. I also wanted to mention here, <clears throat> as I'm listening to you talking, I'm thinking about the concept of it's a marathon, not a sprint. So you cannot completely forget your well-being as an athlete because you say I'm focusing on my performance. You need to be able uh, to balance everything and then your performance will be better. Yeah, exactly. I think having that, again, awareness on the macro level of understanding what's going to be best for me in the long term, especially with all these people that are probably listening that have lofty goals that are not goals that are going to be met within the next six months to a year. It's more of a marathon and understanding that you should probably cultivate a lifestyle that is going to lead to the lifestyle that completes the marathon in an efficient way rather than have a really good first couple of miles and then be in a bad spot for the rest of the, the 20 miles, for example. I wanted to really hone in on how self how the self-compassionate athlete could handle adversity, negativity, or just pressure in general. So what I like to do, this is just how I operate, is I like to get very clear and concrete. So maybe we can talk about two athletes that are experiencing the same adversity. So maybe they just made a big mistake and there's reason to be really negative and down on themselves. So one athlete doesn't really have the awareness, or actually maybe they do have the awareness that they're being negative, but they don't understand the value of self-compassion and they don't know how to exercise it. But then this other athlete, again, making the same mistake, facing the same adversity, understands, okay, self-compassion can be a way to bring out the best of me in this next shift, in the next game for this next week. What, what are the real differences that why the self-compassionate athlete can handle that adversity more effectively? What, what might be going on in their brain and in their self-talk? I feel like they would probably be in a better position because they would be able to change their thinking and their self-talk. And then again, because mindfulness meditation is a big part of that, they would probably be able to calm themselves down and, you know, be able to relax the body. So we would have both the body and the mind being, you know, relaxed and the mind and the thoughts being reframed and everything. So they would have some skills that they would be able to help in the moment when it's happening, after it's happening, and then being able to work with them to make a plan for the next time. And you mentioned the, in, in, in this more relaxed state of the body and the mind, and how I think about this is you're not necessarily relaxed, like you're calm and zen, but it's basically reducing the intensity of the stress response in the body, which if it's not controlled, if that stress response is in the red, how I like to frame it, it's, it's creating physical symptoms that do not lead to your performance being as good as it can. And the, some very clear examples of this are 
your muscle tension is going to be excessive. And this means your, your coordination, your accuracy is going to be off and it's not going to be in that sweet spot. So what, what ends up happening is the athlete who doesn't get out of that negativity spiral, their brain and body is going to be more stressed as a result. And now their muscle tension, their, their, they're going to have more cortisol in their body. They're going to be stressed as a result overall in their system. That's, that does not lead to better performance. Whereas the athlete who can exercise a bit of self-compassion in this moment, maybe they're still really stressed out. Maybe their muscle tension is not perfect, but it is going to be in a better spot. That again, especially as you cultivate this skill and you get better at it, and over a long career, if you're able to get into the state of mind more often than the other athlete, you're going to have better results after making these mistakes and facing adversity. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds spot on. And whilst you're, you're talking, I'm thinking about a metaphor that I like using with athletes. And I say that it's okay to have butterflies in your stomach. The stress will be there, but you need to have control. So you need to get these butterflies to fly information. So again, this is what we're looking to have that bit of control that uh, will be able to, to help you with regulating whatever's going on with the body. Yeah, I love that metaphor because it's not about getting rid of the butterflies. It's about what can I do with the butterflies? And if you don't do anything with them, they're, they are flying out of control. And that is the negativity spiral where you, you're, you're in this anxious thought cycle that is leading to anxious thoughts that lead to being in a physical state that you don't feel comfortable and confident in. And then you feel more anxious as a result and it just keeps going. Whereas the other athlete, when you can exercise a sense of control over those butterflies, over the stress and anxiety, man, do you feel a sense of empowerment and confidence. And that can be such a game changer just in and of itself. But again, there are going to be a lot of similar symptoms that you feel like because the butterflies are still there. But again, having that empowerment of saying, I have some agency, I have some control over this. It, it just leads to a different athlete altogether. Exactly. And it's that taking the responsibility to take that control. Let's talk about motivation. Is there any link between the self-compassionate athlete who has these tools in their toolbox and feeling more motivated or being able to exercise more motivation on a consistent basis? Or is this, is this in a different area? To be honest, I have not read any research about that. So we can make assumptions about it. What I'm thinking quite a lot is that if you are self-compassionate, you will potentially be more motivated because of your self-talk, because of how you're talking to yourself. And if we're thinking about athletes that are on the verge of burnout, very tired, they have to wake up six in the morning, go to the training before their university school, whatever's going on for them. If you are self-compassionate, taking that responsibility, you will say to yourself that this is my goal. I have to do it. So I'm taking the responsibility to get up. So some people might see that as that person is motivated and they get out of bed and they go to training. So this is the link that I can see for that. Yeah. And what I was hearing in that is it's preventing and managing burnout yet again. And burnout is a, a very strong lack of motivation. So I think that makes sense where it might not be a direct link to I'm feeling more motivated to put in the work, but it's preventing, it's preventing symptoms that will, might bubble up and lower your motivation as a result. So 
maybe not a direct link, but still uh, something that it kind of like self-compassion has this is this umbrella term that is going to seep into an enhanced mental game in all these different ways. And that's one way that it indirectly is linked to motivation. So basically every human that is in existence experiences stress and adversity and an athlete does not just experience this stress and adversity within the context of their sport. It's also just in life. And even if they are not an athlete anymore, this self-compassion tool, the way they can reframe their self-talk in this way is going to enhance their mood in a lot of different ways that isn't just related to performance. So this could just be having a lot on their plate or going through a tough, having a tough relationship at, at one point or maybe regretting something that they said. So ha have you, is part of your teachings with self-compassion to clients and athletes something that is emphasized outside of sport as well or is it really just confined to the context of sport i feel like this is as you said in the beginning a life skill and it can be translated to everyday life because again when we're talking about our inner critic our inner critic doesn't only exist in sports it exists in every everyday life and you know how you behave in your home if you have kids if you have a partner if you have siblings how you are at your job, at school, at university. So it's everywhere. So I feel like whatever skills you learn and how much you develop your compassionate side will translate to every area of life. Sometimes it can be uh, a bit difficult uh, from my experience working with athletes if you focus that inner critic quite a lot um, in sport and how you talk to yourself there. If a person's identity is kind of mainly the athletic one, they might be able to do that easily. Uh, but if you think about everyday life and other things they do, it can be a lot more difficult for them to translate that skill from sport to everyday life. So there's something there about educating people that it is a life skill. It's not just one thing that you can use for your performance and kind of take it from there. And the beauty of a lot of these psychological skills being really just life skills is that you're able to get these mental reps and train this technique of enhancing your mental game outside of your sport. And then it's training your ability to also do this within the context of your sport. So it's almost like you're getting these reps while you're not on the pitch and you can get these reps more outside of, outside of your sport. And then when you come back, over the next week for, for your next set of games, you're a little bit better at it because you had experience with using these skills outside of practices and games. Exactly. But again, it needs to be practiced in every area of life. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get to some practical tools of more specific ways of people to practice this skill of being self-compassionate when it might be difficult to. And I wanted to start off with something that you've already mentioned a little bit is the mindfulness meditation practice. So let's start off with explaining different ways people can do this because there's, there is not one way to do this. And a lot of times someone will try one way to meditate and they won't like it and then they give up. So maybe we can just go over a few different methods someone can practice this. A lot of the things that I have used as part of my research, working with athletes on how to develop their self-compassionate side, um, are different. So we could start with a meditation slash visualization. 
So there's something about, you know, being able to breathe, really go in and being able to visualize that compassionate side, that part of yourself and how it looks like. A lot of people, you know, visualize themselves as a person. Other people visualize a color, an image, an object, whatever they think um, is connected to that side of themselves. So there's something about being able to feel comfortable and, and go there and feel connected with that side, however that side looks like. And this is a way to keep the connection. If an athlete or somebody is not really into that or is not able to go and do that by themselves, there are some easier ways that you can do to go there. So part of being self-compassionate is being present in the moment. So if you don't want to do that through a visualization, you can use some small mindfulness exercises to be able to do that. So anything that can be done in a mindful way to put you in the present moment and take your inner critic out of this overthinking of what's going to happen. So some examples that I have used with athletes are when you have a game or competition and you're walking there, then you can have a mindful walk. You can try to, you know, breathe, be really present in the moment, look around, see what you're able to see, you know, if you're walking outside, smell the air, if it's raining and be able to connect with yourself, with the nature. If you are outside, if you're not outside and you're in a building, you know, notice the colors around you, people who might be passing by and, and trying to just be in the present moment. So this is another way to do that. And again, it's any activity you can do in a mindful way. So some athletes have taken that and are creating their own mindful warm-ups before they start training or a competition. So it could be anything you want that you can turn it into a mindful activity to just get your inner critic out of your mind and be present in the moment. There's a few things I wrote down that I wanted to pick up on and maybe elaborate. So. First of all, the importance of being present is, is magnified here when we talk about self-compassion because, again, self-compassion is that the opposite of excessive self-criticism. And a lot of times that self-criticism is, is stemming from a lot of regret or frustration and guilt over the past, or it is a result of being really anxious and worried about the future. And this is why if you can practice this exercise that teaches your brain to get into the present moment more often than it does get dragged into the past and future, you're going to be in a better state of mind that can be, that can quiet down that inner critic. So again, that's why this being present practice is very important. Something else I wanted to mention is, can you normalize the frustration people feel when they try these practices and they find themselves constantly getting distracted? And one thing I will say is this is how the brain is wired. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, you are, you are going against ancient machinery that is made to do this. So it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean you're bad at meditating. It means you're just getting a lot of mental reps. But I just imagine a lot of people try these exercises and maybe over the course of a minute, for example, they think, 
okay, maybe if I become unfocused on what I want to focus on three times, and that's good. And then it happens 50 times and they think, why would I ever try this again? But it, it, that's, that's how it's supposed to happen, especially in the beginning, right? Yes, I feel like this is very common. And I have a lot of athletes coming back to me and saying, I just can't do that. This is not for me. I cannot concentrate. My mind is wandering and this and that. And again, this is very normal because as we said, our minds are not conditioned to do that. We are conditioned in these day and age to overthink and, you know, be in the future or in the past, but not in the present moment. What's important for people to think about when they try any type of mindfulness meditation or anything like that is that the goal is to be present in the moment and not really to follow the rules. So if you have a script or if you're thinking about what you should be focusing on, but then you're not able to stick to that and your mind goes elsewhere, you need to bring yourself back and say, oh, okay, my mind went there. And you acknowledge that. By you acknowledging that this happened, you are present in the moment and you are fulfilling the goal. So it's not a failure. Can I stick to the rules or not? It's just being able to be present in the moment. Um, any way or another. And again, as any type of skill or sport, that needs to be practiced. So the more you do it, the better you will become. But again, always remember that the goal is to be present in the moment. And if your mind goes somewhere else, you just bring it back and say, okay, I've realized this and I'm bringing myself back into the moment. And for more, for even more of a buy-in for people to do this, when you exercise that awareness of, whoa, my mind just wandered to what I'm not focused on, you're, you are in the present, you're doing it right, but also you're training that ability to be awareness on the micro level of being aware of your thoughts. And that, again, is the gate you have to go through before you enhance the quality of your thinking. So it's almost like you're training two things at once. The last yeah. thing I wanted to mention about this meditation, this mindfulness meditation practice is, uh, or maybe just ask you, how would you recommend people to start this based on how long would they do this for? And I, I like the idea of like your warm up walk to the stadium, for example, that that might be different for a lot of people, though. But if they just wanted to go on a walk or do this at their desk for a certain amount of time, where where do you start people? I feel like it depends on what your experience is. If we're talking about a person with no experience, in it at all, you know, try for a minute. If you try for a minute and you think, oh, I really cannot do that, try for half a minute and then keep going. Is again, like a skill that needs to be practiced and there's no right or wrong way to go about it. So try for a minute, see if it works for you. If it doesn't work, go a bit lower and then try to build up on that. And the last thing that I'll say on meditation, because I do think it's a very fascinating and helpful skill, is that it's almost, it's a skill that you train, but it's also the point of it is to change the way you behave in life outside of that meditation practice. So to try and bring that into your everyday living and your state of mind and the, your general way of thinking is really the goal. It's not just something you do for a minute or 10 minutes and then think, okay, I got my chores done. And then you just go back to thinking how you were it, it's it's a the the i the idea of it is to change the way you behave out of it but the way you change it is through that specific intentional training method 
Let's talk about reframing in general as this tool to use of self-compassion. And we, we already went over reframing a thought. And again, you cannot reframe it unless you're aware of it. And once you're aware, reframing it like you would talk to a friend. So changing that thought like you're not talking to yourself anymore, talking to a friend or a loved one. We already talked enough about that, but is there, is, do you have any other methods of how you might help somebody reframe a thought if they don't like that method? I feel like on that, I wanted to add that when we're talking about developing our compassionate side, what we would usually do in terms of getting that self-awareness of, okay, what type of thoughts am I having? What is going on in my mind? Is that we would try to ask, I'm, I'm usually asking athletes to write some stuff down or record themselves depending on what they prefer, on what they're thinking when, you know, they, they're anxious or they think they're being critical or somebody tells them they're being critical. So there's something there about having enough evidence to see what the thoughts are and being able to create the patterns of, okay, am I talking to myself and saying that I'm not good enough or I don't deserve this or I shouldn't be here. And then by having all that, we move on to the reframing, which we call in this type of work, compassionate self-correction. So you would basically take the unhelpful fault you have and say, okay, this is what's going on, but how would my compassionate side say that to myself? And again, you can use that and thinking about yourself and your compassionate side. If you want, you can think about, okay, what I would say to a friend. Another thing that I've been using quite a lot, if there's a major incident that happens that brings a lot of self-criticism and blame and shame and all that, I would, again, ask athletes to write down or record or like video something like alert themselves and they write it as they are their compassionate side. So they're trying again to normalize what's going on for them. But then again, they need to have a goal at the end of how they move forward to emphasize that responsibility taking. I think it's a really impactful tool when you can exercise reframing in the way of almost creating an alter ego of yourself and wondering, okay, what would this person say or think? And doing that just for yourself, but your alter ego is the compassionate self. And, and again, this is not the compassionate person who's going to take responsibility out of the equation. You're still doing that, but you're doing it in a way that's going to lead you to being more receptive to that. So I really like those methods of noticing the unhelpful thought and wondering what the compassionate self would think about this thought in, in a way that's still going to lead me in the direction of being my best self. So those are, those are really, I, I love reframing because there's just so many different ways to exercise this tool. And it's really just about the person to try out different tools and be aware of what they resonate with. And then, okay, that's the one that they, they might do a bit more of as opposed to the other ones. Any, anything else you wanted to add to reframing before we go to this, this perhaps last tool? I, I don't think so. I don't think so at the moment. The only thing I just wanted to say generally is that you need athletes, people need to do what works for them. So 
even if saying my compassionate side sounds, you know, strange, or you don't even want to use that language, then you can name that side something different. So you're kind of reframing the compassionate side into something different to make it work for you. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's again, we can't do everything for the athletes. And how I like to say this is I will give my athletes and I'm working with the blueprint to an enhanced mental game, but it's important that you fill in the details. And one of those details that you mentioned is the, the way you name these tools sometimes can be a big difference in, again, your connection and how much you resonate with a tool and, and how much you're going to want to use it and the impact that it does make on you. So uh, we, again, are giving, we can provide these general tools that can be really helpful, but there are very specific details that will change the effectiveness for different people because humans are just so dang unique in their own ways and different. So it's important to recognize that. And uh, I, I heard a, I heard an, a pro athlete talking the other day of how he likes to approach this like he's a scientist. And I think that's a really cool analogy because he's basically talking about how he experiments in a lot of different ways in order to figure out, okay, what felt the best, what works for me. And I think that's a really good idea to take with people as they start to train these tools, approach it like they're a scientist, like they don't have all the answers, but they're going to find the answer. And that answer is what's going to work best for me. Exactly. And I feel like this is where the power of psychology lies in terms of being person-centered or athlete-centered, because if mental skills training or any type of skill we want to teach doesn't resonate with the athlete, then it won't work. And it's as simple as that. Yeah. And, and if they're trying to fake their way into thinking it does work, if it, but if it doesn't feel right, then we're not going to, we're not getting anywhere. If, if anything, we're just creating more tension and frustration. The last tool that I wanted to talk about that I guess we alluded to earlier is this reflective practice. And I take this into journaling. And I, I think I've mentioned journaling in at almost every episode at this point, because I think there are different applications for it that can be so helpful in different ways. So where do you take the practice of journaling in a way that can help someone be more self-compassionate? So again, I wanted to highlight the power of reflective practice and, and being able to do that, which again, I love journaling or as I said before, if somebody doesn't resonate with writing, you can type, you can record. I have athletes that are younger that they want to, you know, have like a video talking about what's going on. So you need to find what works for you. And then there's different ways you can go about that. As I said before, you can have, you can write down, you know, something as you are your compassionate side. So the compassionate side is writing to you. And this is very, very effective when, again, we have like a major incident that's happening and the emotions are too raw and there's loads of self-criticism. You can also reflect on the different, the different parts of the self. Because it's important to say that, again, we have multiple parts of self and they're all needed. So we don't really want the anxious part of the self to go away because it can be very useful at some points or the sad part of the self or some parts that people might assume that are unhelpful. So when there's a situation that might cause a bit of stress or anxiety or anger, Maybe you can reflect on the situation from the different parts 
of the self. Okay, so this is what my anxious part of the self is telling me. This is what the compassionate side of the self would tell me. This is what the relaxed and chilled part of myself would tell me. And then try to identify what part of the self you need to bring forward in the moment to help you out in that. Because again, the self-compassionate side is absolutely amazing based on my experience and all the research you can go online and read, but it's not going to be helpful every time. So you need to know that what parts of the self you have and when you need to bring one out and not another. I think that's a really cool method of how I see it as simplifying the brain and it takes it from this really confusing nebulous thought cloud into, okay, there's, there's actually just a few different parts of myself that are spawning thoughts and creating thoughts that are making me feel in different ways. How can I just take one of those ways and focus on that? Because that seems like the most salient and relevant that I need right now. And journaling is again, a, re a really great way to take control of understanding of how your brain works and then being able to direct it in a way that's going to help you feel better in that moment. And again, you can take that into the future with you. Zoe, this has been a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of in-depth details about really just how to be a bit more self-compassionate with yourself in a way that's going to put you in a state of mind that will lead to more, more consistency in performing to your potential. I, I wanted to, before we end here, ask if you had any stories of working with people that might've been really intensely negative to themselves, but are now a bit more level-headed as a result of your work with them. Is there, is there anything that comes to mind? Yes, I had one client that she was part of my research. She was uh, a participant there. And what I did in my research is eight one-to-one -one sessions with athletes, and it was all about self-compassion. So there was a lot of psychoeducation around what self-compassion is and the techniques and tools you can develop to use on your own and all that. And that specific athlete was very fearful of self-compassion. And she said many times that, you know, I was never self-compassionate because I thought I would be, I would be weak and people wouldn't take me seriously and I wouldn't be able to move forward and all that. And part of psychoeducation of self-compassion is, as you previously mentioned, some things about how the brain works. And there's a lot of links in compassionate mind training, which my research was based on, and evolutionary psychology. And it says that, you know, we have that anxious or stressed part of our brain because we got that from our ancestors. It's the safe than sorry principle. So our ancestors who heard, you know, some noise, they got afraid, stressed, and started running away. Most of the times, maybe that was just a rabbit or a bird. But if they opted for that safe and sorry principle, they survived. Maybe once or twice, you know, it could be a lion or, or something that could be a danger to them, but most of the times it wasn't. So we still have that part of the brain that gets really stressed because it wants to help us survive. And sometimes we just get anxious because of that, because of how the brain has been designed. So when the athlete learned about that, she said that the whole approach of building the self-compassionate side felt very de-shaming 
because it takes away that shame that the anxiety is mine and the self-criticism is mine. And I have created my own, you know, big and loud inner critic. So I feel like that was a big win for her. And then again, being able to practice and be present in the moment and use all those skills to be able to get that inner critic to kind of slow down for a bit and that compassionate side to come out and support her, especially around, you know, performance or decisions around performance and different transitions from, you know, one level of her sport to the next. I just find evolutionary psychology so interesting because it helps us understand this unbelievably confusing organ that is the brain. And one that same story, I think, blew my mind back in undergrad when it helped me understand, okay, wait, this is how the brain is wired, or, or at least helps me understand a lot more about why we think these things when they feel irrational. It's because that survival trait was passed down because although it might have not made sense a lot of the time, sometimes it did. And even more so, it makes even less sense nowadays because we're not in a hunter-gathering environment or culture. We're more anxious about looking bad in front of our friends and family in a game, for example. But just like, just like the athlete in that story, that, can, that opened my mind to understand, okay, now I understand the power of all these other tools and why they make sense to work on because it is trying to counter the way this brain was structured and wired and how we got passed down this this perhaps overly anxious organ that creates a lot of anxiety for no reason. And now, okay, now we can do the work to, to reduce the intensity. So, man, I almost, I almost wish I asked that question earlier because then we could kind of use that to, to seep in or to understand everything else that goes into this. But that's still such a fun story. And I bet you see that all the time with the psychoeducation piece, really op- changing people's perspectives entirely on why it's important to, to, to work and perform exercises that can change the brain because we understand specifically in the ways that we do need to change it. Exactly. Evolutionary psychology is so fascinating, but, you know, not our topic for today. But again, this was a big, big, big finding in the research that just educating people about what self-compassion is, that responsibility aspect, where it comes from, takes away that shame that a lot of people have about it's my fault. And I have created this, I did this to myself. And again, for uh, practitioners that might be listening, tackling that fear of self-compassion has been proposed to be the first step to be able to then um, move on with the self-compassion tools and techniques, either working one-to-one with athletes uh, or with teams. Yeah. And I just think that psychoeducation piece is so important again, because I can't imagine any of this stuff feeling important and worth doing if we don't understand the why behind what we're doing. So, and, and just a cherry on top, I find it endlessly fascinating. So I think a lot of other people do too. So again, Zoe, thanks for joining and talking all about this stuff. Where can people find you if they want to reach out? Thank you for having me. It was a blast chatting with you. So if people want to find me, come have a chat. You can find me on LinkedIn at Dr. Zoe Zombapulo. I'm sure you're going to have that in the comments. You can also find me on Instagram at Creative Sport Mind. I'm doing a small refurbishment of my profile, but please do come. There's going to be loads of psychoeducational posts about everything we talked about today. 
So hopefully you might find that useful. Perfect. Thanks again, Zoe. Thank you. Stay up to date with the podcast by following the sports psychology of on your podcast platform and see short highlights from every episode on Instagram. If you want to start working on your mental game, try out one-on-one sports psychology coaching with me by visiting my website, zelicoperformance.com and schedule a free intro call where we'll discuss your goals, obstacles to success, and determine if we'd be a good fit to move forward. You can also email me directly at gabriel at zelicoperformance.com regarding private coaching or the podcast. Links to social media, my website, and email are all in the description. Thank you for listening.